0: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way, of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak in the name of the one living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. From today's gospel lesson, this is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Well, today we have the familiar story of the baptism of Jesus at the hands of John. As I say, it's a familiar story. We all know the, at least the basics of it. And yet this is a story that has confounded theologians, caused head-scratching among theologians and arguments among them for centuries. Think with me for a minute. What was... Uh, What was John the Baptist's theme? What was his theology? What was his gospel that he preached? He preached a gospel of baptism for the repentance of sins. Now, keeping that in mind, remember, it is our orthodox Christian theology that Jesus was sinless. And so the theologians wrestle with this. Why then did Jesus need to be baptized? So I say, it's been a matter of debate for centuries, but when you think about it, it goes back to the event itself. What did John the Baptist say when Jesus showed up? He said, whoa, wait a minute, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. You baptize me, I don't baptize you. So this, is, this has been going on since the event itself. Now, I would love to stand before you and say, I have come up with a brilliant answer to this debate, but I can't do that. I do happen to have what I think is a brilliant answer, but I had nothing to do with coming up with it. In seminary, one of my favorite professors shared his theology on this, and I think it's great. He said Jesus did not need to be baptized. Instead, Jesus subjected himself to baptism in order to demonstrate in a palpable, obvious way his participation in in solidarity with humanity. In other words, Jesus went through this baptism to reveal, to show that He is one of us. So I say, I think this is a brilliant insight. I think it's spot on. It is a great answer to this theological debate. And so we can all say, so what? What does that do to help me here today? Well, to get from that story to that question, I want us to examine for a few minutes God's response to this baptism event. It strikes me that the response is overwhelming overwhelmingly a response of joy. This sense of joy just explodes from the page, doesn't it? This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. How can we read anything but joy into that? It got me to thinking, what would have been God's response if the scene had played out differently? What if it had played out something like this? There's John doing his baptism thing at the, at the River Jordan. Jesus shows up and Jesus says, Hey, JBAP Cuz. Remember, they actually were cousins. Okay. JBAP Cuz. How you doing? Looks like you got a good thing going on here with all this baptism stuff. Business is pretty, pretty slick, but I've been thinking, me being Jesus and, you know, perfect and all that. Why don't I dunk you today before I head off to my preaching gig? Now, we know what John would have said. John would have said, sure, sure, that makes sense. But how would God have responded? Now, some of you, many of you, hopefully all of you, have heard me say from this space that I often, and I often say this, that I think it's the height of arrogance for anyone to say, I know what God thinks. I know what God's will is. I know what God's plans is. I know this or that about God. And I ascribe to that. So I can only tell you what I believe. But I believe God's response would have been displeasure. You see, I do believe that in large part, if not entirely, the joy that sprang out of God from this event sprang from the fact that Jesus demonstrated such amazing humility. On the other hand, the scene I just painted, our little make-believe scene, would be a scene in which Jesus demonstrates the polar opposite of humility, right? It would be pride and arrogance on the part of Jesus. And I think, I believe that would have displeased God. Now, if I'm on the right track, I think we can extrapolate from this that when you or I participate in, when we demonstrate, when we live authentic humility that pleases God and when we demonstrate live into pride or arrogance or hubris that displeases God now, I know this is hardly the, uh, a sensational news story nothing that you would say stop the presses over this so I kept pondering about that what can we do with that and I think this leads to two vital questions for our day-to-day lives. The first question is, what is it that is the source of pride? What causes us to be prideful, to be to be arrogant? And if we can, secondly, if we can locate that source, can we then find an antidote for pride, or even better, a way to prevent falling into pride in the first place? And these are, in my judgment, vital questions for you and me as we go through our lives because pride poisons relationships. It poisons the relationships between us. And more importantly, pride, arrogance, poisons the relationship between us and God. Think back with me all the way back to the very beginning, to Genesis, to the Garden of Eden, Why were were Adam and Eve expelled from the Garden of Eden? Pride, remember what happened? They ate of the forbidden fruit, and why did they do it? I'm quoting here because they thought eating the fruit would make them, quote, be like God. It was pride. It was arrogance. Pride places a barrier between us in God, and so these are vital questions. What then is the source of pride? Well, as I considered it, the notion began to emerge in my head that 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 pride comes from the act of comparison. in other words, when we compare ourselves to others, when you and I compare ourselves to some person. Or group of persons, and we decide, we come to the conclusion that we are superior to them, then pride and arrogance is certain to attach. It is certain to follow. I want to make sure you heard me clearly. I said when we conclude, I didn't say when we are superior. I fully subscribe to that statement in the preamble of the Declaration of Independence that all humans are created equal. And yet, don't we all do this? Don't we all look to others and search for ways in which we can say, which we can convince ourselves, I'm better than him, I'm better than her, I'm better than them. I'm better looking, I made better grades in school, I work harder, whatever. We all search out and find those ways to decide that we are superior, and that puts us on the road to pride and arrogance. Now, likewise, the act of comparison can lead us to a form of humility. If we go through this same exercise and decide, much to our chagrin, that we are inferior to that person, or we are inferior to that group of people, then a humility in that relationship begins. But there's a very dark side, a shadow side to this way of encountering humility, and it's this. If we live in that place of feeling inferior to someone else or others, well, pretty soon the twin enemies of envy and self-loathing take hold. And God doesn't want us to live in that place, does God? Of course not. So the question here is, we get right down to it, the question is, how do we live in that place of neither pride or arrogance over here, nor self-loathing and envy over here? How do we live in that seat of authentic Humility? To answer that, I want us to all engage in an exercise together. I want each of us to think about that person in our lives, in our experience, that person who, looking back or looking at the person today, most embodies for us the Christian ideal. Let's get that person in your head. And I'm going to suggest as you think about this person and you think about these topics, you'll say, well, he or she never demonstrated pride or arrogance. And, and, and this person has never been self loving or envious. That's where we want to be. How does that person do it? How does she do it? How does he do it? Well, of course, I haven't conducted a study, but I'm pretty confident this is how it happens Whoever that person is who you're picturing in your mind, I'm willing to bet that that person does not does engage in comparison but never compares his self or herself to another individual, but instead compares themselves to God by maintaining a constant presence with God through prayer. Say that again. They compare themselves to God by being constantly in the presence of God through prayer. Now folks, when that happens, guess what? We're going to recognize we're inferior and that humility will come flooding into us. And at the same time, and this is my favorite part. Are you ready? Watch this. At the same time, there is no fear of falling into self-loathing or envy. You see, when we compare ourselves to someone else and we and we feel inferior to that person or that group, we begin to worry about what that person or that group thinks about us. That doesn't happen when we compare ourselves to God because even as we recognize or in the process of recognizing our astounding inferiority to God, we don't have to worry how God is looking back at us because we know. We know that God is looking at us through the eyes of love and nothing else. And so if we can emulate Those who we've been thinking about who compare themselves only to God by being in God's presence constantly through prayer, that will give us a life of authentic humility. And my friends, if that is where we find ourselves, then I believe this with all my heart that God's response to each one of us will be something like this. This is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Amen.